After today, we'll jump into the uh, letter, not letter, but the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. We'll jump back into Acts. Not Acts, excuse me, Luke. My mind is everywhere right now. Um, we'll go back to Luke. And if some of you weren't even members of the church, and uh, back pre-COVID, I think 2019, uh, I, we spent a long time in the Gospel of Luke. And we stopped uh, mid, mid chapter 19, uh, right before the triumphal entry. And then we did, uh, anyways, so uh, it reminds me of a story, and, uh, and you're going to get a history lesson, so just, just take, a, take a moment. Um, during the Reformation, there was a man named John Calvin, and Calvin is vilified often, but usually unjustly. Uh, but regardless, he, was, he ended up as a pastor in Geneva. And he was a pastoring in Geneva for, for a little while, and they got upset with him. It's a long story. They got upset with him, and they kicked him out of the city. And he went to Strasbourg, where he hung out with another reformer named Martin Bootser, or Bootser. And, uh, and he enjoyed his time there very much. Uh, but eventually, the Genevan authorities, the church in Gene- Geneva, they needed his help with something, with the Reformation. And uh, long story short... They called him back after three years. So I think it was 1541. I might be wrong, but it's around that roundabouts. Around 1541, they call him back. And John Calvin had been, he began preaching in the book of Romans. I believe it was Romans. And he did a certain amount. And then they kicked him out of the city. And he was gone for three years, pastoring a, a refugee, basically a refugee congregation in Strasbourg. And then when they called him back, he picked up at the next verse in Romans. So it was three years later. So he came back. And so thankfully, you didn't kick me out anywhere. But we are almost three years later going to come back. And by God's grace, we're going to finish uh, Luke, the, the Luke's gospel through the end of April. So the Sunday after Easter, if everything goes well, right, uh, if everything shakes out uh, as I'm envisioning it, uh, we will we'll finish up Luke then. So we're going to so. We'll, we'll jump out of the, the, the baby prophets, the little prophets here, the minor prophets, uh, which, as we've learned, are not so minor. There's, there are weighty things in the minor prophets, in, uh, in these 12 little prophets. And they're called minor because they're short. So that's kind of where we're going. We'll be into basically the, the end of Luke's gospel, looking at uh, the Passion Week, Jesus' last week before his death and resurrection. So, but now we're going to finish Haggai uh, chapter 2, which, uh, and if you would stand as I read verses 20 through 23 of Haggai chapter 2. Hear the word of God. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and to overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down. Every one by the sword of his brother on that day declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord And make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, O Lord, as we come, that you would 
Give us an appetite to hear from you, a longing to hear from you, a longing, as Tony saying, to know you more and that we might know you more from your very mouth given to us in Scripture. So help us to hear, help us to see, change our hearts, transform us into the image of Christ. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, speak to us. Even today, even us, oh God, would you speak? Father, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So let's just kind of put a bow on Haggai. I don't know if he would appreciate that, but we're going to do it anyways. No, no pity laugh for that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> that was a real pity laugh. Okay. Um, so Haggai, really at the, at the heart of Haggai, remember this is a ministry of a prophet that spans only about three and a half months from beginning of the book. Now, we don't know what else Haggai does. Uh, like he doesn't, he's not, he's not born and he doesn't die in this book. Uh, but this book records a, probably a season of his ministry, a particular season of his ministry that's only three and a half months long. And yet in three and a half months, God, through the activity of the prophet, moves a people who are apathetic and self-absorbed to being focused on God and his kingdom and working diligently on rebuilding the temple. They go from being focused on what's, what's called their paneled housing, right? Their, their nice houses. And then now they're focused on building God's house. And God does that activity of moving the people from self-absorption to God-centeredness. He does that through the word of God coming through his prophet. The function of God's word, one of the functions of God's word, is to align us with God's purposes, God's will, God's plan. And if we turn a deaf ear to God's word and God's plan revealed in his word, we cannot claim to care about the will of God nor about the purpose of God. The will of God and his purpose for your life is not something that you discern in your alphabet soup. It's not something, there's a joke there about Cheerios, but I'm not going to do it. uh, It's not something that you discern by simply walking around. Not thinking upon Christ, not thinking upon the Word. It's not something that, is, that comes from you. Our culture often tells you, follow your heart. You know, and that you are somehow the source of your purpose. And dear ones, that's a lie. That's, the, that's a burden that you can't handle. You ever tell that to a college student who changes their major six times? What kind of anxiety and burden you're laying upon that young person? Just follow your heart. I have no idea what my heart is telling me. It's telling me this thing one day and this thing another thing, another day. 
And, and, if, and if you're in that season of life, uh, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily outgrow that. Right? There are times when you are altogether scattered about where, where am I supposed to do now? There are seasons of life where things have invaded and, and things haven't gone right. And you've seen dreams crumble and you're, what am I do now? And the, and the encouragement to follow your heart there is debilitating and not encouraging. Go into the woods and find yourself. I, uh, can I tell a funny, so I'm taking this class. I might offend some, if you're a visitor here, I don't mean to offend you. If you're a member here and I offend you, I've already done it once probably. So, uh, that I'm, I'm in this uh, new religious movements class for, I'm in school right now. If you don't know that back in school, silly, silly man, uh, back in school. And I'm taking this new religious movements, which is just a, a nice way of saying cults. And right now, I'm, I'm, we're going through these lectures on uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which they, they don't want to be called Mormons anymore. They're, they're Latter-day Saints, okay? So be respectful. Uh, but there's a story of some of, uh, of, some of Joseph Smith, who was, one of, he was the founder. Joseph Smith Jr., there was a senior. Let's not get to There's a, lots of Joseph Smiths. But Joseph Smith Jr. is the founder. And some of his relatives... Uh, before Yellowstone was Yellowstone, they were walking through Yellowstone, and there's a story about them seeing Bigfoot. They saw Bigfoot, and Bigfoot, I'm not trying to ridicule this, I find this funny, this story's funny to me. They saw Bigfoot, which, I don't know, you know, cryptozoology, you go on Instagram, there's all sorts of pages you could follow about Bigfoot. Uh, but then the, the, the kicker was, is that it wasn't Bigfoot, that was Cain, like Cain and Abel Cain. And he was walking around as Bigfoot in Yellowstone. So go into, your, go into the woods and find yourself and you might find Bigfoot, okay? And, um, or something else. But that can be debilitating and it can be, it can be heavy and crushing. Whereas the, the message of Haggai is the complete opposite. The message of our culture in this world is some derivation of, you know, follow your own heart. Go after your dreams. You do you. You find your truth. You find what makes you happy. You do you. You kind of insulate yourself sometimes from all rationality, from all logic and common sense. But you insulate yourself from anything that would be a negative voice so that you can do you. And, and this is something in some some veins, in some ways that our current culture is just it's giving a, a standing applause to this. For some people, they feel like they found it. They, they found, here's my, here's my thing. Here's my identity. And whenever, whenever we begin to curve inward to find our purpose and our dreams and our intentions and our, our, where we're supposed to be, if we simply curve inward, one, we will eventually, we will eventually learn that that well is dry. That that bank account is empty. Or it probably in the red. That I don't have it. I don't, I don't have it. And the message of Haggai isn't the... Because the, the, the sort of the gospel of our culture... The gospel of our culture is self. Right? You can do it. You can solve it. You figure out your way. No matter what the naysayers say, this is how it's posed to us. 
And it's in that false gospel saying there is a problem. There, there is, you know, false gospels imitate the real gospel. So here's creation. You're made. You're beautiful. You're true. You're fallen. You, 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 things are not right in your life. And the solution, the redemptive solution of this false gospel that's offered, it has no redemption. It's actually one of self. Dream it up. Conjure it up. Pull yourself up. Do better. Try harder in some way or fashion. And that is, at the end of the day, leads us in all sorts of tragic places, but it leads us to despair. It leads us to despair. If I am to be my own redeemer, if I am going to be the one who wins my battles, if I am going to be the one who finds my path and accomplishes my path, who frees myself from the chains that entangle me, if I am the Redeemer, then I have no redemption. That's no gospel. The gospel of self, of self-redemption, of self-identity, of self-authority, it is no gospel. And yet, recognizing that, we see the world around us continue to Double down and triple down and quadruple down and what's next? Quintuple down on. Is it, anyways, you get the idea. They, they double down on this false gospel and all it is doing is that it is, it is dragging people down into despair. And the message of Haggai is the complete opposite. It is not the solution to your problems is not more self-absorption. That is, in fact, very near the root of your problems. The answer to your problems is not more self-absorption. It is not more time in front of the mirror. It's not more time simply writing poetry on a stump. Or like uh, if you go to what's that, Carl Sandburg's home in Flat Rock, North Carolina, Connemara, and you could go see the goats. It's all great and fun. But one of my things that sticks out to me is that Carl Sandburg was a great poet and he tried to write history. He wrote these, all these volumes about Lincoln, which are sort of mediocre, but uh, he's a better poet. Anyways, um, but he had a chair out in the woods. You have his house. If you've been there, you can, you, they still have it. I kind of want to have it in my house, but not for the same reason. But uh, just go sit somewhere quiet for a second. Uh, but he would go out there and he would, he would sort of, this is how, where he would get his creative impetus. He would get his creative uh, drive was that time sitting in the woods and he would write poetry. That's where that, but, but the answer to your problems isn't more of you. And the answer to your problems isn't another person. Where, uh, you know, it could be that this other person, you need, you need uh, love from this other person. Or you need appreciation, you need identity, you need approval from this other person. You feel like if you had that, or it might be the the negative side of that corn, you think you have all of these problems, and if we could just take care of that guy, everything would be all right. Or that lady. Not like order a hit on him. I mean, you might think like that. Hopefully you don't do that. If you have done that, uh, stop by my office this week. Just give me a call ahead of time. And I'll have some, there'll be some fellow counselors there who have, uh, they have interesting uniforms. Anyway, um, but just kidding. 
But, uh, but the, the answer that is often posed to us is more of you or other people. If, you, if, I just, if I just figure this out or if I just realize this identity and if people will applaud and approve of me resting myself in this identity, whether it is a work identity, whether it is a sexuality identity, if I can just have people applaud me here, then I will finally have self-flourishing, self-satisfaction. I can walk around with my head held high. We all know that doesn't happen. One, you're not going to get approval from everybody. Even if you have the coercive power of the state behind you, you're not going to have everybody's applause. But even if you were to receive everyone's applause, and you were to walk around, everybody walking around as though they were the center of the story, could you imagine the, the cacophony of clapping? You walk into Times Square in New York City or you walk down Main Street in Elgin and every single person is being literally clapped for as they walk along. And we think that somehow this is what we need. Everybody needs to be validated where they are. Self-absorption. Acting as though I need me to be the center of your life and you need me to be the center of your life. It's ridiculous. But oftentimes, this is how we operate. And this is how, in a lot of ways, the people of Israel were operating at the beginning of Haggai. They had put God on the shelf. And they were saying, I'm going to build my house. I'm going to do me. I'm going to build my nice house. I'm going to work my plot of land. I'm going to gain my, my, my riches or I'm going to earn my living. I'm going, to, I'm going to do me. And what that had led to not only... Were there spiritual ramifications, which our culture cares nothing about, it seems. But there were literal physical ramifications. The things that ought to bring them satisfaction were hollow and barren because they would removed God from the center of it. They didn't have enough crops and even the crops that they had and the bread that they made it actually didn't give them, didn't satisfy their hunger. So we need a people. There is a there's a collective, almost corporate conversion that happens in the book of Haggai. Where there's this move from a, bu- a, a, a bunch of individuals focused upon themselves who are m- turned by the power of God through His Word for God's purposes. To be centered upon Him. See, the reality is, is that this world isn't about your glory It's not about your applause. It's ultimately, at the end of the day, not about you or me. Now, don't misunderstand me. You are treasured. You're valuable. You have dignity and worth inherent to being a human. But it's because of the one who has made us. And it's because of the one about whom this all is. The false gospel wants you to center your hope upon yourself or another person. The true gospel says center your hope upon God. Turn your eyes off of yourself and upon Him. I've heard it said that true humility is not thinking less about yourself, but it's simply thinking about yourself less. Humility does not require self-degradation. But it requires a lifting up of the attention. 
And humility is at the very center of the Christian life. When we come to the end of Haggai, Haggai has gone through this three and a half months with this people and he's been giving them uh, sermons. Each one is marked with a historical marker. And we've been talking about this is 520 B.C. And in fact, the last one began on December 18th, 520 B.C. in verse 10 of chapter 2. Our text happens on the same day. It's a different vision and it's addressed individually to Zerubbabel. Which, that's a good dog name, if you want to use a Zerubbabel. Maybe not. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. He's the governor and not the king because there are no kings of Judah. They are under the hands of Darius. They're under the hands of the Persians. They, are, they have overlords. They are not a free people. And so he's the governor rather than the king. And if you were looking up Zerubbabel and you had a Bible dictionary or simply a a Google search, we'll show you that Zerubbabel is of the lineage of the kings. He's of David's line. And he shows up in Matthew chapter 1 in Jesus' genealogy. Verse 12, 13, somewhere in there. You have Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, this guy, shows up. And God comes to him in the prophet Haggai and says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms and to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. He, he basically says, I'm going, to, I'm going to topple all of the regimes that would stand against you. Now, we, we immediately bump into problems understanding this. Because shortly after this, all record of Zerubbabel ceases. Shortly after this, 520 B.C., Zerubbabel drops off the map. Either he dies or the Persians learn that it's just been prophesied that God's going to topple the government and they take him out or he just continues to serve in, in anonymity. We don't know, but these promises don't come to bear in Zerubbabel's life. What does that leave us? Is the Bible wrong? Come on, y'all. Zerubbabel is a representation. He is a representative of the Davidic line. And this actually is something that happens often in the Old Testament. There are several times in the prophets, a notable one is in Hosea 3, verse 5, if you're taking notes, where it's talked about David the king is going to come and do this or that. He's going to come and conquer or win and, and lead his people. And David's been in the ground for a long time at that, centuries at that point. And so David being a representation of the Davidic line. And why is the Davidic line significant? It's the line of Jesus. All right, that's a, that's a good reason. Why is that the line of Jesus? What had God given to David when David was alive? Promise. There were promises. There was a, there's a covenant that God made with David that David would always have a descendant upon the throne. And sh- and. and And Zerubbabel is of that line. And so the promise of God is represented through Zerubbabel. Through this earthly representative, the promise of God saying, I'm going to establish the kingdom. I'm going to establish the kingdom. And we know that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen, their fulfillment in Jesus. And so to, to kind of cut to the chase, Jesus is king. 
Jesus is the realization of all the promises that God gave to King David. And he's the promises that all, of, of all of these Davidic-like promises that God gives through the prophets like this one. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is king. Somebody amen. Jesus is king. Amen. Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's the king. And this is a messianic Picture a messianic promise uttered to Zerubbabel, the representative. And what's the promise? That the king will subdue our, his enemies. So Zerubbabel is a representative of the Davidic promises that find their fulfillment in Jesus. The promise is that God will, in Christ, subdue, conquer, defeat... His enemies. Now, there's, there's a lot of meat on that bone that I don't have time for. Um, so rather than a rack of ribs, we're going to do a chicken wing. <laughs> Getting hungry. Um, that God is going to conquer, conquer. There is a victorious element to Jesus. But if we're going to understand the kingdom of God, Jesus is the king and he comes to establish a kingdom, then you have to understand something. That Jesus does not come to set up an earthly, temporal kingdom. Consider how he came. Born in a manger, lived in poverty, lived a persecuted life, gave money to Caesar. Said, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And then he was killed by these Roman authorities. But yet he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So he is inaugurating, he's bringing into a spiritual kingdom. And this immediately disconnects from us because we think that our greatest adversaries are flesh and blood. We believe that our greatest dangers are some geopolitical unit that's going to threaten our way of life. Whether it be China or Russia or North Korea or terrorism, fill in the blank for the decade. And we think that that's our existential threat. We think that this flesh and blood reality, or we think it's some flesh and blood reality about sickness or poverty, And so we have false gospels telling us that if you just believe in Jesus, your sickness will go away. And you'll have enough money. And if we would as a country do this or that, then we would have American dominionism. These are heretical garbage that you need to kick to the curb. That Jesus establishes a spiritual kingdom because our greatest threat is a spiritual threat. Our greatest threat, we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, cosmic powers in the heavenly places. We wage war, dear ones. It is not with AK-47s, M4s, Barrett guns, whatever else we got. All those things, I'm not knocking the military, but understand what I'm saying. That the Christian's battle, the spiritual kingdom of Jesus, confronts the spiritual realm and reign of Satan. And this is why when you look at our text, and it says to Zerubbabel, this representative, these promises fulfilled in Jesus, he says, I'm going to overthrow the throne. 
singular. I'm about to destroy the strength, singular, of the nations. Singular throne, singular strength. That at the end of the day, all of the rebellion in spirit and in flesh, all of the rebellion against God finds its root in the rebellion of Satan against God himself. And this is a rebellion that our first parents were co-opted into. They were tempted and chose to be their own gods, to be their own gospel. And it's something that we continue to buy into, that we are a people co-opted in this rebellion. So that leaves us in a precarious place. If Jesus is coming and he's going to conquer the enemies of God, and if you and I are a part of the rebellion against God, do you think on those facts alone, I have not told the whole story yet, but on those facts alone, do you think that you would be a friend of God or an enemy of God? That in and of ourselves, we are enemies of God. We are at enmity. We are at hostility with God. And that just dramatically paints the portrait that you are not the solution. So that if we don't have some sort of deliverance, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the King to destroy the strength of the kingdoms against God means our own destruction. Dramatic pause. Water break. But do you see what I'm saying? That we have all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is the breaking of God's law. It is a rebellion against God. And so you and I, all of us, have partaken in rebellion against God. We have taken the fruit of Satan and said we would rather have ourselves and that dark empire rather than the reign of Christ in his life. Is that the end of the story? Is that what the only thing the Messiah has come to do? No. No. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. There's this remarkable turn of the story. That the way that God defeats darkness, the way that God crushes the head of the serpent in Christ, you don't skip to the book of Revelation. The way that he does it is through the humiliation of Christ, being born as a man, and then suffering death in our stead. What does that mean? That Jesus died the rebel's death that we deserve. Have you ever considered when they asked for Barabbas and the short descriptions that the gospel writers give of Barabbas, who they took Barabbas, they wanted Barabbas rather than Jesus. Do you remember that story? And it says he was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer and insurrectionist. And dear ones, there it is. The rebel is set free 
because of the death of Christ. In Barabbas, we should not simply see some wicked man, though he was. We should see ourselves. That we are the rebels. Who are walking to the gallows. We are walking to the cross. We are walking to the tree of shame. And Jesus has pulled us out of line and stood in our place. And it was there... It was there on Golgotha's hill, on Calvary. That is where death lost in the death of Christ. The death of death and the death of Christ. John Owen has a great book. Just read the title because you're not going to enjoy the book. But it's really hard to read. It's a great book. It's really hard to read. But the death of death. And he has conquered our enemies. And so why is it now that we're able to say with Paul in Romans chapter 8 that we're more than conquerors? That this is why the, with, with the Apostle John and 1 John, that the Son of Man has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Or the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, he takes on flesh and blood to destroy the one that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, namely the devil. Or John chapter 12, verse 31. Now, Jesus says, now. The ruler of this world is cast out. Now, then, Satan is cast out. Jesus subdues our enemies. And he begins, he begins by freeing us from the enemy of our own sin. The first enemy that he must subdue for us are our own rebellious hearts. He must subdue within us our own longings to be our own savior. He must subdue within us our own drive to be the center of the story. He must take away the heart of stone that is cold to God and refuses to listen and replace it with a heart of flesh. And he does this by the power of the spirit of God. He quickens us and makes us alive though we were dead. And the question is, church member or pew sitter or wherever you are, has that happened? Not as though you're perfect, but has he come into your life and made you alive? Is there a definitive truth in you that the old is gone and the new has come, that you're a new creation in Christ? Is there any evidence of it in your life? Not just that you you prayed a prayer. Not just that somebody baptized you. Maybe I even baptized you. But is there fruit in your life? Of a new heart. Of new longings. Of new wants. Where Christ the King has come to be enthroned in your life. If that's true. Right? If Christ the King has come and kicked off. The domain of darkness. And he's kicked you off the pedestal you want to live on. And he's taken up ownership of that throne in your life. Consider the changes that must happen. The faith that begins to bubble within us. The hatred of sin and the love of holiness. The adoration towards Jesus and his purposes. The love of the word of God. The fledgling fruit of the Spirit being born on our branches. 
Those things should be there. If he has subdued our sin, and if he is subduing it, growing us up as we continue to strive and we continue to struggle, Christian. I know you're not perfect. I'm not either. It's not what I'm saying. But I say we serve a different master now. Though I might trip and fall and stumble and sin, it does not have dominion over me any longer. And if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Jesus's, that is true for you too. The other enemy that, as I've mentioned already, that must be overthrown, that is overthrown in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is Satan himself. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now, Jesus says, yes, he'll get his in the lake of fire, but the victory is won. The victory over sin, Satan, and his minions is won. And he is and has overthrown the throne of the kingdoms. He's overthrown the seat of rebellion. And what we are continuing to go through, it's like when you cut the head off a chicken. I've, I've, only, I've never done this, full disclosure. I don't have... So, some of y'all have chickens. Um, but I've never done that. But you know what happens? It doesn't just... It flops and flips and flops and flips and does all this sort of stuff. And this is what we're in going through right now with Satan. His head is crushed. Death is beaten. Christ is reigning. He has entered into glory. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father right now interceding for us. The victory is won. And these are death pains. This is the belly roll of a dead beast with a lot of weapons and a lot of meanness still. But dear ones, we look to Christ who won and is winning the battle. And because it is a spiritual kingdom, we don't look to the newspaper to get our indications of how the battle is going. We look to the cross. We don't look to the newspapers or Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, We look to the cross. For Christ has died. And Christ has risen. And Christ is the one who is chosen of God. Who extends to us the signet ring. Christ. Notice as I close up here. I know. At the end. Verse 23. On that day declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you O Zerubbabel my servant. O son of Shealtiel declares the Lord. And make you like a signet ring. Now notice, he doesn't give to Zerubbabel the signet ring. He says, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. You know what a signet ring was? It was something that the king would give to someone that had his approval. Consider the story of Esther where the king gave the the signet ring to Haman and then he pulled it back and he gave gave it to, or, you know, Haman did his stuff, died. And he gave it later to Mordecai. The signet ring. It was a sign of the king's approval. It was a sign of welcome. That the way that we are accepted before God's throne is only in Christ. That Christ is our signet ring. He is our elder brother. He has died for us and we've been given his his righteousness through his new life. So what, what now? Well, at the end of Haggai, 
Leave off self-salvation. You are not righteous enough. You're not good enough to rescue yourself. You can't find your own purposes. You can't accomplish your own dreams. And even if you get everything your sinful heart wants, you will still be empty and barren. Turn to Christ. Turn out of darkness and come into the light of Jesus. Believe upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Christian, do not despair. Do not fear. Do not fear. Now the ruler of this world has been cast out. Jesus is our conquering king. He has conquered. He is conquering. And he will conquer. Look to the cross and remember the battles won. And then go live like it. Live as you battle sin in your own life. Live like the victory is won and that's forgiven. Live as you wrestle in this world to make Jesus known. Live as though the victory is won. And when Satan presses, which he will, and he is. He is. You look to the cross and you remind him that his head is lying over there. Our Lord has won the battle. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the testimony of your word and the power of your spirit. We thank you for the good news that you have made rebels, your friends, through the death of your only son, Jesus. That on him, the iniquity of us all was laid. And in return, through faith, by grace, we have received the signet ring of Christ's righteousness to stand forgiven, free, and eternally saved. By Christ and Christ alone. I pray, O Lord, that you would move in hearts now. For the discouraged and for those who are walking in the battle. Whatever that battle looks like. However Satan has reared up and seeking to deceive and seeking to debilitate and seeking to introduce fear. Lord, would you turn that saint now to Jesus? And they would see their conquering king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Would they be welcomed? As they come to you in faith, Lord Jesus, would they find shelter and safety and refuge with you? Lord, I pray for those who have been duped and continue to rebel by seeking to save themselves in one way or another. I pray, O Lord, right now that you would show them the futility of that path, the futility of the message that we are somehow the center of things. And that you would break down the heart of stone give them new life as they trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Would they know that wherever they are and whatever they've done, 
If they call out to Christ, come to Christ, they will be forgiven and be free. Lord, would you be exalted and have your way amongst us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.